Welcome to the Peer Review, the Bosch Young Investigator's Guide to Science and Beyond, brought to you by POCD Scientific. Your hosts are Leila Fawani and Gabby Gregoriou. I think the current system is... Concerning. More money. Terrible. Crap. Dysfunctional. Limited. Divisive. Dire. Unacceptable. Insufficient. Pathetic. Challenging. Total waste of time. That was the response from scientists and researchers who were asked how they felt about a topic that affects them all, and something often not appreciated by the general public. Many researchers believe that the current state of funding for health and medical research in Australia is on the decline, with many fearing not only for their jobs, but for the future prospects of science, health and innovation in Australia. For today's episode of the Peer Review Podcast, we spoke to a panel of scientists from Australia and overseas and asked about their experience and opinions on the current grant and funding situation. My name is Kelly Charles. I'm an associate professor at the University of Sydney. Brian Cornell. I'm a professor at the University of Western Ontario. Associate Professor Renee Ryan. I'm in the discipline of pharmacology in the Sydney Medical School. Andy Murray. I'm currently a senior research fellow at the Sainsbury Welcome Centre for Neural Circuits and Behaviour at University College London. My name is Alan Richter. I'm Professor of Anatomy at the University of Newcastle. Currently, my position is here as a associate professor in the Department of Anatomy. Academics are expected to take on many roles, from teaching to administration, and at the same time run research labs, conduct experiments, promote their research at conferences and apply for grants. How much of their jobs is really taken up by applying for grants? A majority of my time is spent um, thinking about or applying for funding. For something like the NHMRC, you might spend two or three months. So I would say it's about two months. Scientists have to become quite accustomed to rejection and it's a huge part of the grant application process. We wanted to know what is the success rate of grant applications? If you look at baseball stats, which is kind of interesting, but if you th- uh, hit 30% of your balls for a run, or at least uh, to get to a base, um, you're considered a great player. Um, I think if you think that uh, you can get about 20 to 30 percent of your grants funded, then I think you're a superstar. For NHMRC, it's been zero out of probably six or seven. And then for my other smaller grants, I would probably say I'm more sitting at maybe 60, 70 percent. Probably about um, 33 percent. That's an old system where you could, after a review, you could go back in with a a response. Probably 50-50, but they've all been reasonably small grants. Since success rates are so low and reviews are so harsh, what are reviewers looking for in a grant application? (laughs) Um, So with a very high rejection rate, the sad truth is they're looking for reasons to pick something apart. Interesting science. It can't be... Me too, or a bit mundane. I'll try not to be too cynical. <laughs> With the NH and MRC, I think um, you a good application is an application which is virtually done. It's difficult to say. So, I, I mean, I would like to think that they're looking for some novel ideas and interesting science that sol- solves a problem. Oftentimes, they're looking for things that are guaranteed to be successful. Doing the same old, same old is not going to be good enough. Is there something that could help scientists improve their success rate? I wish I knew that the university keeps most of the successful grants from each year. You've got to sell what you're doing 
to people that may really have no idea what you're talking about? You have to have a pilot, we call them advisors or supervisors, to help you navigate while you're still sort of relatively fresh and, and new to the system. More after this break. Peer Review Podcast is proudly supported by POCD Scientific, an Australian-owned manufacturer of quality stains and other reagents for pathology, a supplier of solvents, and also a distributor of many brands of scientific equipment and consumables for the Life Science Laboratory. They provide local support and service for well-known agencies and products such as Eppendorf Pipettes and Centrifuges, A&E Balancers, Chirotech PCR Machines, and much, much more. Please visit www.pocd.com.au or contact your local sales rep, John Lee at jlee at pocd.com.au. You're with Gabby Gregoriou. Scientific research is something that benefits everyone. However, as we've heard today, knowledge does not come cheap. The traditional approach to getting funding is to apply to the major research funding bodies in Australia, where they look at the number of published articles, peer-reviewed journals and the impact they have. But what does this mean for the over 80% of unfunded projects with promise and potential? More and more people are turning towards alternative sources and it could be the answer to close the gap. I think that's really important that the universities finally cotton on to that only because the funding system changed. They really should have been pushing other funding sources, I think, before that. But anyway, now the, you know, the way that block funding um, comes in is not just based on Category 1 funding. So the university doesn't care where we get money from now. And I think we all need to realise that there's other ways to get money. And the NHMRC are not, not going to support our careers. I mean, it's just not going to happen. I think so yeah and the university had to invest more money in research which they're trying to do I don't know if they're doing it the best way you're with Leila Thawani how does Australia stack up when compared to the rest of the world latest figures show that Australia does not fare well when compared to other countries As a percentage of GDP, the government only spends 0.4% on research and development. This is less than comparable to other nations such as the US, Canada, the UK, Denmark and South Korea. Professor Brian Corneal. Yeah, so so it's a fairly convoluted story in the last five to six years. So prior to that, prior to about 2011-2010, it was fairly similar to the NIH system. Um, our funding levels were a little bit high, sorry, the funding rates were a little bit higher, but overall levels of funding were lower. But similarities in that you'd have lots of face-to-face peer review, um, very thorough and, although difficult, ultimately fair peer review, which I think is what everybody was asking for. Uh, where things diverged in the last, starting around 2012 in the Canadian system, so CIHR is the NIH equivalent, uh, CIHR is the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, and they went on this uh, massive reorganization. And so the typical operating grant project scheme um, was subdivided into two new streams of research, one for the superstars, this was called the foundation grant. And the idea there was that these people that you might might have three to four individual grants, they would have the opportunity to roll it all into one big massive grant. The benefit being that then that they didn't have to renew every six months or something like that. Um, they could have some certainty in their funding. Uh, the other grant stream was a was a was a project grant, very um, sort of directed towards a single research question. 
uh, in and of itself, this wasn't a bad idea. It was more the implementation of it, how the funding got subdivided, what would happen to the early career investigators. Dr. Andrew Murray. In the UK, I think it very much depends where you are. So I think the sort of larger, um, let's say, London, Oxford, Cambridge sort of universities are doing quite well, I think. Um, there's a little bit of worry about uh, Brexit and whether European money will disappear. But I think all in all, the larger universities are doing okay. You know, they can uh, researchers there are, are getting some money, and everyone will always complain there's not enough money. But um, in my experience, at these places, things have been better than than others. I have, you know, I did my PhD in Aberdeen in Scotland, um, and I know a lot of people at sort of smaller universities. And there, things are very, very difficult. So I did my PhD in the neuroscience department in Aberdeen, which basically has almost disappeared since you know, the last, whatever it is, eight years since I left. Um, it's very, very difficult to get funding at these small places because it's difficult to form collaborations with people around you if you know, other people are not getting money. There was a, you know, a few years ago a sort of move really to centralise funds and, and research and a lot of research institutes opened in sort of London, South of England, also in Edinburgh and places. So these sort of provincial universities I think are, are really, really struggling and that's a shame because there's a lot of good people uh, at these places. So I think there's, in the UK it's almost, uh, sometimes can seem like a two-tier system, but I, you, know, you could always say it could be worse. I think the, the sort of funding rates for the government research council are around about 20%, 25% for some of them. Um, so you have a, a good chance. It's just the difficulty can be getting into that cycle of getting money and getting going, getting some people. And I think if you're starting out at a small university or don't have any core funds, then it can be very, very difficult to, to get your research program going. The National Health and Medical Research Council, or NHMRC, the peak funding body in Australia, allocates up to $800 million from the federal government to fund medical research in Australia. While this amount may sound considerable, the numbers don't lie. NHMRC project grant success rates are at an all-time low. In 2014, these rates were below 15%, which were the lowest in history. And in 2015, this rate dropped further to 13.73%. The Health Minister Greg Hunt recently announced the new NHMRC grant funding program that aims to address some of the issues raised in this podcast. Professor Bruce Robinson, Chair of the NHMRC. Yes, look, there are four new grant categories that have been announced with this new program. Um, the first category are investigator grants, which are designed to support the research program of outstanding investigators at all ages. The second are synergy grants, which will um, will support multidisciplinary teams of investigators who are working together to answer big questions that couldn't be done by a single person. The third category are ideas grants. These are really very focused and innovative research projects which address a specific question and don't rely so much on the track record of the person applying for them. And the fourth category is the strategic and leveraging grants which are to support research that address, addresses identified international, uh, national and international needs. And the, this last category of grant may well be the sort of thing that government, for example, will uh, decide it wants to initiate in response to a particular health issue that's arisen. For example, the development of bird flu, for example, that would be the sort of thing that might become the subject of that type of grant. 
Will the inclusion of an ideas grant focused on innovation affect researchers working on rare but no less debilitating conditions? Well, I think these ideas grants really open up the opportunity for a researcher to study a rare condition, um, but they'll also be for the study of novel ideas, just as the name of the grant suggests. So it's, it's important that people realise that you don't have to have been working in an area, have a lot of track record or expertise in that area. You simply have to have a really good idea that's judged by your peers to be outstanding and worthy of support. A number of academics and scientists have questioned whether the changes go far enough to equalising the playing field between early career scientists and those more established. Look, I think they do go a long way to doing that. I think particularly the Synergy Grants will enable multidisciplinary teams to get together and um, that then is a, an area where younger, less well-established investigators can participate as part of those teams and may therefore develop expertise themselves that will enable them to lead such teams in the future. Um, the second thing that I think is quite a leveller is the ideas grant, as I've touched on, because you don't have to have a big track record as an early career scientist to be able to get one of these. Is the time burden of the application process and the probability of success counterproductive to the actual goals of the NHMRC, that is, building a healthy Australia through high quality research? Is it possible that the current process is actually taking researchers away from the task of answering difficult questions for the health of all? Very definitely, and in fact this was one of the major drivers for this change. There are many, many more grant applications being lodged these days than there used to be. And as you all know, the probability of those grants getting funded has diminished over time, down to about 12 to 13% in the last round. So it's felt that there really does need to be a process which makes it um, more competitive for people to even put in a grant application for them to um, be limited. So you notice that there is some capping in the new system so that the grants can be spread around more. Um, and also, I think very importantly, there will be fewer grants that actually go to peer review and so the, the volume of peer review needing to be done will be less. Could scientists do more to promote research to the community? And would that drive increased budgetary spending on science and innovation? I think informed people in the community realise the relevance of research, but because of the lack of immediate return on the investment, they, uh, they and politicians, I think, sometimes don't quite understand that, that despite the delayed return, it's very important that this money is spent. I think we have to constantly keep arguing the case for money to be spent on research and innovation in this country. Um, obviously medical research is something that we're all particularly passionate about. Um, there's very good evidence that high quality medical research actually drives not only improvements in, in care based upon the discoveries that are being translated, but secondly that uh, healthcare facilities in which research is being undertaken generally provide better care than, research, than, than healthcare facilities where research is not being undertaken. So very important messages for the public to get and to get them at every turn. So it's not all bad news. In 2015, the Australian Federal Government introduced the Medical Research Future Fund, which hopes to bridge the gaps between our health system and medical research. This could be seen as a big win. 
By funding medical innovation and research, the aims of this scheme looks at delivering new practices, services and innovation to continue to improve the health and well-being of Australians. In all, this fund aims to provide a whopping $20 billion by the year 2020. Well, th this was a great coup to get this um, fund through the Parliament. Um, it's gradually accumulating money and it may not be quite $20 billion by 2020, but it probably won't be too much beyond that, that there will be $20 billion. And therefore, of the order of about $800 million a year to disperse. That's the equivalent of the current NHMRC spend. So, in essence, this is one way of virtually doubling the amount of money being spent on medical research in this country. The process by which the money is allocated uh, is different to the peer-reviewed process that money is allocated through uh, by through the NHMRC. There is a political opportunity here for politicians and the political parties to be able to influence the way the money is spent. There's also been a biotechnology funder created to help try to fund innovation in biotechnology. Um, that money is being set aside from within the MRFF. So overall, um, this and, and it's also felt at the moment too that this money will focus more on the translational end of the research spectrum and might perhaps take up take off a little bit of the pressure on NHMRC to be seen to be funding absolutely everything. Not that I'm saying that NHMRC is not going to fund translational research because it funds a lot of very good translational research and it's not going to pull back from that position. But there will be less pressure on the NHMRC to fund that type of research and that should allow um, more money to be freed up to spend on clinical and basic research. The Peer Review Podcast is brought to you by POCD Scientific. This episode was produced by Fatima Wazin, Daisy Shu, with hosts Gabby Gregoriou and Leila Fawani. You can find the Peer Review Podcast on Twitter at Peer Review Pod, our website www.medium slash the peer review. You can also subscribe through wherever you get your podcasts, Stitcher, iTunes or Apple Podcasts.